I'm Richard, and welcome to Esotork's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of May 5th, 2014. Join us this week as we talk with Kathy Schultz, who, with her husband J.D., runs the eclectic and macabre Museum of Death in Hollywood. We'll also visit with Bob Ajemian, manager of the Vedanta Press, to learn about the writer Christopher Isherwood's abiding influence on the press and monastery. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to Fifth and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir, Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown, The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So we did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Herbina between Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of May 5th, 2014. Our guest this week will be Kathy Schultz. Kathy is co-owner and operator of the Museum of Death in Hollywood. We're also going to stick in Hollywood for our second interview. We're going to talk with Bob, Bob Ajemi, and he is manager of Vedanta Press, the press of the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Uh, he is out of the Hollywood Temple, which is the original Vedanta building. Um, yeah, the original Vedanta building. We'll have other podcasts on that minor point. Bob is going to talk about Christopher Isherwood. He's going to talk about Christer, Christopher Isherwood, the Bhagavad Gita, and uh, the paths Bob walked with Chris uh, back when Bob was living uh, at Christopher, Chris's time at Vedanta towards the end of his life. So, so the beginning and the end of Christopher Isherwood's time at Vedanta. Kim, yes. tip jar. It's true. There's a tip jar associated with this podcast. If you like what we're doing, 
go to the podcast page and you can make a contribution of any size and it's always appreciated. It helps finance our rambles around the Southland as we look for interesting people for you to listen to. Never obligatory. Always appreciated. We thank you. Okay, Kim, thank you. So let's just let's just roll up our sleeves and get to work. The ditch, the mother ditch, the Zaha Madre, Blossom, uh, Blossom Square, Plaza. Plaza down in Chinatown. The Little Joe's compound. Yeah, it was moved. Okay, last Saturday it was moved. Part of it was cut, part of it was moved uh, really, really fast. I mean, usually when a historic piece of infrastructure is found, you know, you've got a chance to sort of think about what's going to happen, and the city talks about it, and there's some news and some thought and some consideration, but it seems like the developer, city councilman, Office of Historic Resources, and um, the local nonprofit Metabolic Studios all just got together and decided, hey, let, let's get this project back on track, let's take this giant and magnificent piece of the early Los Angeles aqueduct um, Let's get it off the site ASAP and um, get back, you know, to building these apartments. It's it's sort of strange. We were trying to find out for sure if it was happening. It was rumored that last Saturday the cut would be made and 40 feet of this, this brick tube um, around wood, the original Los Angeles aqueduct from the river, uh, would be taken out of the site. We, we emailed the person in uh, Gil Cedillo, Councilman CD1's office, responsible for the project three times over the course of the week, just asking for a confirmation or denial if it was happening, got no response. And then on Saturday morning, they had a press conference, and they moved the darn thing, and it was filmed by Channel 5, and a whole lot of people were there talking about how swell it was, and I find that, Richard, I find that odd. But I thought we were the only people who found it odd until... Yeah, there was an editorial in the Daily News last week. We're linking to it. It's very good. Lot, lots of questions. Um, what did the editorial say? The, the editorial asked lots of really good questions like, oh, um, really? You, are you really giving this to a foundation to deal no, with? No, we're the ones who asked that question. I, I feel like the, the Zaha Madre, as you like to say it, I say Zanya, it's for sale to the highest bidder, the first yeah, nonprofit that, that showed up with an open checkbook just got it and it gets to be part of this water wheel project that they've proposed for down at the river metabolic wants to build i mean that's not a real historic anything it's a replica in the style of something that used to be there the piece of the zaha madre see i said it like you did uh that's a real historic thing and what the editorial in the daily news which was also reprinted in the pasadena star news said is it needs to be preserved in place. To do anything else is really an insult to future generations of Angelinos. It's small-time stuff. It isn't what big cities, big progressive, intelligent cities that respect their histories do. And it's akin to putting living history in a petting zoo. Ouch. It, it brings up a, another really important question for me, which is, does news occur on the weekends because... Um, television channels, radio stations don't actually have the staff on uh, during the weekend. So the reason a Saturday morning press conference was so great is that no only channel only channel five showed up because no one's paid 
to report on the news. Right, on so the no weekends. one showed up asking any tough questions. It was just like, wow, this is really cool. They've got this big tube and all these workers are there and they've wrapped it in a blanket and now they're lifting it with a crane. This is neat, which I guess it is if you want to see something that's been in place for 200 years taken out of its historical context with God knows what down at the bottom of the hole with it being disturbed and not contextualized or recorded. As someone who cares about L.A. history, I find it um, nauseating. Let's talk about the Merced Theater, Kim. We're going to move on. So the Merced Theater is this great 1871 structure. It's Kizor and... uh, Is that an architect? The architects are Kizor and Morgan. Uh, Kizor designed... Are the Morgan Walls and Clements? I'm going to get to that, Kim. Yes. So well, well, I do, and I'm going to get to that all of that. Okay, okay. I can only I can only say one sentence at a time, and I don't and and that, and, and, I, and the I, next the next sentence is that the Merced Theater is on the old plaza. It is immediately adjacent. It is immediately south, which is not really true south, but for sake of simplicity, it is south. It is the adjoining south building of Pico House. It's Spanish colonial K- south. Kizor built Pico House, opened in 1870, Merced Theater, 1871. Merced is Kizor and Octavius Morgan. Uh, Kizor and Morgan would soon become Morgan and Walls. Morgan and Walls would then become Morgan, Walls, and Clements. These are great theater owners, theater built architects in Los Angeles, Stalzo Clements being the Clements in that, and he came on much later on the scene. So, Merced Theater is going to become the uh, public television media center for the city of Los Angeles, and that's an incredibly mediocre thing, and there's mention of some public rooms being available by 2019. 2017, the notion of some sort of theater in the theater um, that can be used for public programming, historical programming. Hey, listen, all of the stuff on that side of the plaza has been vacant, neglected, misused, unused for so many years. It's not the most exciting thing in the world, but you know what? The L.A.'s television channel is not going to be there forever. Television isn't going to be there forever. At least they're putting some life back into the old place, and I look forward to seeing what they do with it. Okay, Kim, let's, let's, let's juggle it up. Let's talk about things you look forward to. Like what? The demolition of Parker Center. <laughs> Not really looking forward to it, but that's what the city's... Um, cons- well, what, what is the person? Some, somebody... Building, building and safety. The, the, the engineer, the, the he- yes, uh, there's an engineer from the Department of Engineering, did a report. I, I wrote them an email and told them not to demolish it, and they didn't listen to me. Or Maybe. the 20 other people that agree with me. It wasn't a convincing enough email. Yeah, Parker Center, the, famously the most wired, which is to say the, the, the most wire-tapped building in L.A. history, perhaps in the world. No, I'm sure there's a KGB building that's more tapped than that. But, um, yeah, you know, it's a white elephant. It's a beautiful, modernist, groovy thing, and it's sitting there, and no one wants to do anything with it. And the idea is certainly something needed, although we have plenty of vacant lots downtown that, you know, could be the site for this. A 27-story tower to consolidate a city of L.A. workers with some sort of land bridge tying them into City Hall. So, oh, and a swimming pool, and a cafeteria, and um, ground-level storefronts, which is certainly, you know, I, I think it's hard to argue that what you've got right now with a completely sealed-up Parker Center is preferable to that. Our friend John Button likes to use the notion of 
Parker Center as a sacrament of Chief Parker's faith in surveillance. A sacrament being a tangible sign of your faith, an outward sign of yes, faith. Yes. So we're going to leave with that. Let's no, no, no. No, there's a couple things I want to say first before we move on. One, if Parker Center must come down, um, there's some art in Parker Center, and there's simply some structural stuff in Parker Center that should be preserved in some sense, because it is a truly important building. But here's a thought. How about a museum of surveillance and spying? It would be a huge attraction in downtown L.A. Just throwing it out there. Okay, Kim, let's get back to things we're unhappy about. Uh, uh, We're not happy about the Riverside Figueroa Bridge. I think it's safe to say it's not going to happen. We have an interview about six months ago with architect Kevin Walcahy on the topic. He's spearheading the movement to save the bridge. The Frogtown Highland Project. The Frogtown Highland Project. Um, Not getting much support from elected officials at this point. Right, and the the point of this note is that this week, Gil Cedillo, CD1, came out and said... Oh, Gil Cedillo, the guy whose people never get back to us about the Zanja Madre? The guy who decided that he doesn't believe in the past, and so Googie supermarkets in Highland Park need to be turned into arts and crafts supermarkets? Yeah, that guy. Um... Yeah, he he doesn't think that the uh, Frogtown High Line is a feasible project, although he's open to some little weeny bit of it maybe being preserved. You know what? Wait and see. It's always good, Kim, at this point in the podcast to meditate on the, the definition of power. Which so, Kim, well, I want you to give me any definition of power which comes to mind. My mind is a perfect blank. You have a power over me. Okay, Kim, let's talk about the definition of power. The definition of power is those who can allocate resources. Okay. Okay, city council members allocate resources at a municipal level. They're incredibly powerful, and um, they're the ones making the decisions, and that is uh, that is one one really big vector in the public policy uh, in the public policy space. So we just continue to meditate on that. I think it's super sad, super sad, and a strange thing for me to say, that Highland Park and Chinatown, some of the oldest and most historically significant neighborhoods of the city, with some of of the most extraordinary historic landmarks in them, has such a short-sighted councilman. Every time he's gotten anywhere near anything of historic significance, from the moment he moved into his offices on Figueroa in, in the old Masonic Hall, which is National Register, and he just, his, well, I know, he didn't destroy the windows, but magically they were fixing up the building for him but, and the but windows got destroyed. What, what about Lummis House? Lummis House is, is being... The, the, the Southern California Historical Society, who have been the stewards there for, for almost 60 years, are being forced to leave. For, for, for 45. 45? Okay, that's almost 60. I mean, what is wrong with Gil Cedillo? Why does he hate the past? Why is he pushing out all of these existing historical locations? Why is he so unsupportive of things that people in his community care about? Money? I don't like it. Allocation of resources. Kim, let's let's bring this. I'm going to bring this on home. Um, this week uh, on Wednesday, May seventh, six p.m. to eight p.m. It's Cafe Fig- uh, Lenos de Figaro. Oh, I as, know that as place. We, we have our we love say. salons there. Ca- Cafe Figaro, probably to a lot of people, 
It's across from the L.A. Theater. We have our Sunday monthly lava salons there. Sixth and Broadway. Six, basically. Thank you. Sixth and Broadway. So 6 p.m. May 7. Bringing Back Broadway is hosting a Broadway signage meeting. Six to seven informal discussion, which I imagine will uh, give us an opportunity to ask lots of uh, really tough questions about really tough topics. Like so looking forward. No, we're, we're, we're just... No, no, no. I can't no, say it. I can't say it. No, Kim, that's not what the informal discussion is. Okay. Okay, we don't know what the informal discussion is. We're just going to bring questions. Everyone who's going has them. And then 7 to 8 is a formal presentation on some ideas about Broadway signage, which is going to be a continuation of ordinances and guidelines already in place to protect, foster, steward, and direct signage on Broadway to improve wayfinding, preservation, and revenue generation. Why do we need wayfinding on Broadway? It's just a single street with numbers. Have you been to Grand Park lately, Kim? Oh, wayfinding! Yeah! Like, that is a goofball. You should take it, you should take it once every seven hours. Know what you're talking about, but I love you. Let's keep going. Okay, so you should come to the meeting. We're yeah, we're please come to the meeting. It's so important. You know, they're doing so much on Broadway, and there's been no public input since 2009, which is why we've been having these free walking tours after the Lava Sunday Salons. We've brought hundreds of people down to Broadway over the last year or so, and people have so many questions. They care so much, and you know, hopefully we'll begin to get some answers now because the fact of the matter is this Bringing Back Broadway initiative, which is um, just, just an initiative of the Council District CD14, it, it's, they're doing a lot of stuff and there's not a lot of feedback. Downtown, the population of downtown in the last five years has completely churned. Many, many different people, many new people have no idea what they're up to. And listen, this really matters. Broadway is a National Register Historic District, that portion where the theaters are. People come from all over the world to see it. we got to get this right. And we can't do what they did at the Rialto for the Urban Outfitters, which is to hire a firm which, God bless them, doesn't know how to do neon properly, and they have crooked, burned-out neon on their quote-unquote restored marquee. This is not good enough, okay? This is not a practice session. It's Broadway, and we've got to get it right. Kim, just a couple points. I'm going to be the one with the last word on this. There has been public input on this ongoing process. Uh, in February of 2013, uh, a, a series of public meetings, which, in my opinion, as someone who reads the upcoming agendas for the Downtown Neighborhood Council and keeps up on the Downtown Central Planning Commission, uh, was a very poorly publicized series of public meetings on the Broadway Streetscape Master Plan. So somehow we missed that. We did. How could we have we, missed we, we did, Kim. We missed it. It was our... We failed. Okay, there were public meetings. Wait, we, you're, you're on all of these mailing lists. How could you miss this? So, so you just can't say that there's been no input. There has been input, but I think, and this is our major concern with this project, is there's 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 not a really good feedback loop. So we're gonna we're well, gonna. Move. I, fa I found this meeting listed on Facebook. Jessica Weathington McLean posted it to the DTLA Facebook page, and, and before all of the ads for cheap Ray-Bans covered it, I happened to see it, so that's why we know about it. Yeah, there's this thing called Web 2.0. It's, it's pretty exciting. Um, okay, so we're going we're gonna to go, and before we go, I just, you know, I really, I'm looking back on these last ten minutes, 
and I'm a little concerned that people think that we don't like city council members. We're so negative, and I just I would just like to end the closely watched train section on a positive note with a, with a with a with a city council member. Uh, week last, a week ago today, was the John Parkinson Square dedication, and they had a it was a great event early Monday morning, and that evening um, we had we were eating dinner with with lots of really great. Um, English expatriates at Lucy's Aladobe Almowers and Tom Labonge was there and I was talking to him following up on his adamant support of the notion of the John Parkinson, 1933 John Parkinson revamp of Pershing Square being reinstated. 1910. Oh, thank you. That's right. The book, the book about Pershing Square that I have that talks about it is 1933. I apologize. So, so Tom Labonge just really excited about the notion of this and uh we've uh I've I've been um Stephen G and I have been calling him because uh the plans the plans are, are, are getting are being put together to present to the city so they can they can try and move ahead. So Kim why don't you say something positive about Pershing Square and Tom Lamange just so because thoughts have wings. Oh it was wonderful. I mean there we were in the palm court of the Alexandria Hotel John Parkinson, 1906, well, 1912 for that, that room. And, and everyone was getting up and saying their piece about how fantastic it was that this architect who really built some of the most important and, and representative buildings in Los Angeles was finally getting some recognition through Stephen's beautiful book and now through the naming of Fifth and Spring just outside the Alexandria as Parkinson Square. And Stephen said in, in his lovely, mushy accent, which I could listen to all day long, He's from Lancashire, you know. Um, he said that it would be so great. With his, his father's from Lancashire. Well, he is too. Steve, Stevens? No, no, no. They, they, they moved to the south. Oh, no. well, I feel very foolish now. In any case, I love his accent. And he said how wonderful it would be if, with all of this positive attention for Parkinson, perhaps something could be done with, with Pershing Square and his beautiful design, which is so beloved and so much missed. And as he said it, the, the room erupted in spontaneous applause, and then Tom Labonge suddenly appeared from, from stage right, and he grabbed Stephen, and I thought he was going to break him, and he said, yes, 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 and it was really great. And then we talked to him that evening when we saw him at this dinner to, to Tom Labonge and said, did you mean it? And he said, yes, call me. Don't call a deputy, call me. And he really you know, wanted to talk about this, and he has some questions and ideas. And that, you know, listen, the reason I get so upset with city councilmen who are negative about historic preservation, who are just consistently on the wrong side of this, don't ask the right questions, don't listen to the people, is it's not that hard to get it right. It's honestly, it's really easy to get it right. All you have to do is care a little bit. Kim, I would actually argue it's it's really hard to develop one or two good habits, and it's really easy to develop 35 bad ones. So we're, we're going to leave that unanswered because I think we're, again, on opposite sides of the fence. I will close our closely watched train section with my favorite anecdote from the Parkinson Square naming, which was I sang to Stephen G.'s <laughs> parents, Lassie from Lancashire, in my worst, in my worst Lancashire accent, and Stephen's father was so happy. Stephen was in going to kill me because all his father's done for the last week now is walk around with his Kindle playing English vaudeville songs from between the wars. You really are an evil preservationist, Richard, and, and there ought to be a law against you, and I'm glad there's only one of you, and I'm glad you're mine.
Mm-hmm. All right, Kim. Um, very quickly, upcoming events. The May Salon. We're now in May. The Salon this month. Circuit bending. It's it's going to be great. We, we've gone. We're running a little long. I'm going to leave it. Circuit bending is electronic music. We're going to have. We're just going to have some complete weirdos who've taken toys from thrift yeah. stores and turned them into bizarro musical instruments. You will get to play with them. You'll get to see what they do, and it's going to be great. So be there. Okay. Uh, Ellen Conto in June, June 22, Sunday, June 22, open house. Ellen Conto. Ellen Conto is this beautiful Spanish colonial revival. Structure in Monterey Park. It was built as a showcase for Peter Schneider's Midwick Acres. There's the corresponding axially oriented cascades across the street. Drop dead gorgeous. So let's leave all of that behind. Give me a something to say. Well, this is just one of the many free lava events that we yeah. organize. So if you if you love LA history, get on that lava list if you're not already, because you'll get announcements about a lot of things like this, including those free Broadway walking tours, which are starting up again at the end of May. Perfect. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get us to our interview. So we're gonna interview we're gonna we're gonna interview Kathy, and then we're gonna interview Bob. So I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce Bob first, and then I'm gonna introduce Kathy because we're gonna go segue right into her. Okay. So so Bob is the manager of Vedanta Press. Vedanta Press's office is in the room that Christopher Isherwood used to live in when he lived at Vedanta. Bob will talk about this. Um, I don't want to go through the whole interview, of course, but I just wanted to throw out... That, that's where we're going to start, is, is Bob is talking to us from the room Christopher Isherwood lived in at Vedanta, where he manages the press. Bob managed the bookstore, and he managed the bookstore after leaving Pickwick Books on Hollywood Boulevard. So this... Uh, no, the other... We have another freestanding interview with Bob just about bookshops in Hollywood, Pickwick and, and Vedanta, these are both important. These, those were the books. It's interesting, you know, I think about growing up, and, and Pickwick and Vedanta books were the ones I was going to in 83, 84, when uh, Bob had left Pickwick by 83, but he was, at, he was running the Vedanta bookstore, so it's interesting that those were the two bookstores that I remember most. You have nothing to say about Hollywood bookstores yeah, came in your I, youth? I liked Pickwick, too. They had a fantastic remainder table. I have, yeah. I have some really weird paperbacks that I bought for a quarter on my shelf still. All right. Yeah, so this is going to be great. That'll be our second. Our first interview is going to be with Kathy. Kathy. Kathy and her husband run the Museum of Death in Hollywood. Yes, I've put a museum of... We're going to talk about guillotines... And embalming. Everyone's talking about modes of execution this week. We're going to talk about modes of execution and embalming and the Bhagavad Gita in this podcast (laughs) interview. So I think I'm really bringing bringing a lot of divergent pieces together. Um, Let's see, things I know, two or three things I know about Kathy. Kathy misses chaos. And with that, I'm going to introduce my interview with Kathy at the Museum of Death. Let's take it away. Bob, Bob, I'm here with you. We're here at the Vedanta Society of Southern California in Hollywood, and I want you to properly introduce yourself and tell us um, what you do here. I'm Bob Ajemian, and I live at the Vedanta Society of Southern California. It's a 
a sort of a type of Hinduism called Vedanta. That's another story. Uh, I run the Vedanta Press and the Vedanta Catalog, which means the publishing, the wholesale, and the mail order. One, one more thing I, before we get started on our topic at hand. Um, growing up, for me, the bookstore here was, was really an important destination for me, at least once a month. Could you just mention the bookstore, which I know you're not properly associated with anymore, but, but you ha- do have a history with? And for about 20 years, I ran the Vedanta Bookshop, which is where most people go when they first come here. Perfect. Okay. Today, we're going to talk to you about Christopher Isherwood. We're going to talk to you about Chris and his time here at Vedanta. And and we agreed that the best way to do that would be to start with some early work of his here at Vedanta with Swami Prabhavananda. So do you just... Should we just jump in the deep end and have you talk a little bit about the Gita translation that, that the two of them... Okay, perfect. Okay, yeah, Swami Prabhupada, uh, Christopher Isherwood lived here for a number of years. He was helping with some of the literary material. We had a, uh, a magazine, a, monthly, a bi-monthly magazine. Uh, he was kind of a little not sure what was going on because he... People talked to him like he had joined the monastery, and that really wasn't what he felt he had done. But he sort of got into the routine, and you could even call him a temporary monk while he was staying here, sort of, kind of. Uh, He helped, with, as I said, with literary materials. Probably the most famous book that he worked on with Swami Prabhavananda was the Bhagavad Gita, The Song of God. And it got very good review in those days. This is the late 40s, early 50s, like in Time magazine. And it's a beautiful literary work. But the way it came to be written is kind of interesting. Um, Swami Prabhavananda was not happy with the translations of that day of the Bhagavad Gita. Hinduism was rather unknown, and there wasn't a whole lot of material. So he was working on it with Chris, and as they're going on it, they worked pretty hard, and when they were done, they had another, just another translation of the Gita. So let me just read a little bit about what Swami wrote about that. He said, Once I was away for a rest in Palm Springs, and I had a Gita translation with me. When I read the twelfth chapter, I felt that the meaning had not been brought out. I saw deeper meanings in it. So I started to translate, and then Chris helped me. I translated and Chris edited. When Peggy Kiss Shadden came, she read what we had done, and she wasn't very happy with it. Then we went to Aldous Huxley, and Chris read aloud, and Aldous listened. And Aldous said, no, that's not right. Forget that Krishna is speaking to the Hindus in Sanskrit. Forget this is a translation. Think that Krishna is speaking to an American audience in English. Then Aldous told Chris which style to use for verse. Chris rewrote the whole 11th chapter of the Gita following Tennyson. I think it was. He produced the book in a week. He was inspired. And let me just read a little bit of part of that. No, this is this is from chapter eleven of yeah. the Bhagavad Gita. Okay. Let him who would climb in meditation to heights of the highest, union with Brahman, take for his path the yoga of action. Then when he nears that path of oneness, his acts will fall from him. His path will be trans will be tranquil. When goodness grows weak, when evil increases, I make myself a body. 
In every age I come back to deliver the holy, to destroy the sinner of the sin, to establish righteousness. Whatever wish men bring me in worship, that wish I grant them. Whatever path men travel, it is my path. No matter where they walk, it leads to me. It is my path. That is beautiful. Chapter 11 is really interesting because just when I came here and we were talking, we were talking about the Manhattan Project. And, of course, Robert Oppenheimer at Trinity, New Mexico, muttered one of the opening slokas from Chapter 11, which is roughly translated, I am time matured, as, as the bomb detonated. So interesting. And I know that we'll, we'll, let's, um, let's talk about Chris. I want you just to tell us about Chris and his time here. I know that you are now the manager of Vedanta Press, and this is a space that Chris used to inhabit when he lived here. So maybe you could just give us some recollections of, of Chris's time here, and, and please remind us when you, you first, uh, when, when Chris would be living in the space which you now occupy for the press. Uh, it was in the mid-40s that he lived here. Uh, actually, I'm, my office is, was his bedroom, which is, I thought was quite, quite ironic, but uh, pretty cool, I think. Uh, like I say, he just lived here, and he, he was a very kind person. I met him in 1969, and I saw him fairly frequently for about you know eight, ten years. Then his his health got got poor. Uh, I didn't see much of him. Uh, he, he was very unselfish. He would meet people. Writers would come to him and show him their books. And he would help them where he could. He had to stop finally because the laws got funny and he he could be sued for stealing somebody's idea. And he didn't want that. Uh, so, But he was very very open to people, very kind to people. And you could feel that warmth when you were with him. Uh, there was He was unlike anybody I had really met. What, what about the Wednesday night readings that he would do? Right. Every Wednesday uh, he would read the, from the Gospel of Ramakrishna. And then Swami Prabhupada would give comments. And you know, being English, the English know how to read. And he just set a mood that nobody else was able... It was always depressing when he couldn't show up for a reading because we enjoyed his readings. And uh, if someone asked a question and Swami gave them a short answer, uh, Chris would say, No, Swami, I think, I think that's a good question. What, what about that? Why, why don't you uh, tell us about the first time you went to, to Chris's house when you first uh, were thinking about, about coming into the order? Well, I did, did not see myself living at the Vedana Society, and I, I knew that Chris had lived here for a while. And for some reason, I thought I should ask him you know, what he thought about it. And, and you have to tell us what year this is, just so we're, we're, we're set, set up before we jump into the story. Uh, this is 1969 or 1970 probably 1970. So I, you know, now I look back on it, it's kind of amazing, a famous writer like that, but I I just call him up, can I come over and talk to you? He said, sure. I went over to his house, and uh, what could he say? You know, he's not going to discourage me. Uh, there are several things about my life that are very unexpected turns, and one of them was the Vedana Society. I was going to be big in broadcast journalism, but uh, I took a more peaceful path. And I think Chris had a part in that. Uh, he was such a nice presence. You know, there was just some mellowness about him that uh, I always saw. Good. I think um, just to wrap this up, do you just want to leave us with something that Chris would want us to think about 
about Vedanta and the the yoga of action and um, and 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 and, and the, the 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 higher self, yeah, the higher self and the yoga of action. Well, Chris was very particular that he not lecture people on religion. He talked at our temple several times, but he would read somebody else's material. He just felt he shouldn't be uh, telling people how how to live their lives spiritually, and he probably would have hated doing it if he had been pushed. So he never approached it that way. Yeah. Perfect. Bob, I, I, I want to thank you for talking to us. All right, thank you. My name is Carolyn Paxton. I'm in Urban Radish here in the downtown L.A. Arts District, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Kathy, Kathy, I'm, I'm here with you in the theater at the Museum of Death, and I need you to introduce yourself and explain to everyone what you're holding in your hands. Okay. Hi, I'm Kathy Schultz from the Museum of Death, co-owner. We're in the theater of death right now, and in my hands, I'm holding a pickled pig heart. <laughs> Actually, it's Chaos's pickled pig heart, and Chaos was our pet pig for 16 years, uh, he passed away about six years ago. Actually, we put him down, had the vet come and do that. And just two weeks ago, I was cleaning out my freezer and pickling all the weird stuff that's in my freezer. <laughs> There's still a few more things, a couple of porcupine feet. Uh, but I found this heart, and it took me, uh, it took a few picklings because hearts are filled with blood. And they're hard to get the liquid clear because it just keeps seeping and seeping into the liquid. So I, I kept changing the liquid. And finally, my husband, J.D., looked at it and he's like, oh, my God, you know what heart that is? That's Chaos's heart. I saved it from the taxidermist. And I was so thrilled because I still have Chaos still is with us. Six years later, I still deal with him in a daily and, and really personal way, especially with this heart being pickled. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Could you give us a little more granularity on the um, pickling process, the solvent, and, and sure. the, the sort of the day-by-day? The day? Sure. Um, pickling the heart, uh, I used formalin. It's a, it's a light solution of formaldehyde, right. basically. And I, I filled a jar with formalin and put the heart first I cleaned the heart with water as best I could and the first time as soon as I put it in the pickling juice it was red the juice and so you can't see the heart it's not a very good display at that point so I left it in there a few days hopefully the uh, the formalin would seep into the the arteries and all the weird porous parts of the heart and the muscle and I took it out did it again same thing so on the third try I really took time with water and I squirted it in all the and it's amazing the aorta is like cardboard like a a hard paper or cardboard it's really fascinating to me and he had no blockage (laughs) so he was really healthy my pig Um, but I really got in there with q-tips and got all any kind of red goo blood that I could get out of it Sorry, your listeners are hearing all this lovely stuff. Um, And then on that try, on the fourth try, the liquid was clear for a longer period of time. 
since I just picked it up, it's been a couple of weeks, I, I noticed that it is very cloudy and bloody, the liquid. So I'll do it again. And uh, that's just kind of how, it, how long it takes, especially for a heart. And eventually it'll turn, the heart will turn gray. It won't be red anymore or uh, fleshy looking. It'll be kind of gray. But it's, it was a really fun process. <laughs> and it made me closer to the pig again. Tell us, tell us a, an anecdote about chaos when he was with us. Oh boy, the pig! I could give you a million anecdotes, but uh, one of the funnest things that I always dealt with the pig was that he he could open our refrigerator, and he sure. could eat all our food, and he sure. he would. <laughs> yes, he's a pig. But I, I uh, we would one day I, I went and I bought one of those plastic child locks to lock on the fridge like and I put it on right in front of him because we we could communicate well he understood me and I understood what he was saying Kathy it's, it's obvious to everyone that you and chaos have a very strong psychic bond which transcends all temporal bonds it did and it does but I, I put the plastic child lock on the fridge, and I'm like, all right, now go ahead. Just try it. And he walks right over and snaps that thing hard. <laughs> snap. He just used that no big snout of his. Snap. Like, and he just looks at me. Ha, 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 Like, ah. So we bungee corded the, the refrigerator often. But if you have guests at any time, of course they're going to forget. And of course I would forget. And I'd come home, and the fridge would be empty. I caught him one day with a bone-in stuffed pork chop in his mouth. The other one was already gone. It was our dinner. <laughs> the one was gone. The one was in his mouth, and I chased him throughout the entire museum because we lived in that museum. This was in San Diego. Chasing him, and he's squealing with the pork chop in his mouth, squealing. <laughs> I never did get that pork chop back. Bone-in, mind you. Yeah. Every... You know, soul, souls incarnate together. So it, I, it, it, souls incarnate together. So you and Chaos have many more adventures, I imagine. Yay! <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> um, why don't we take a little walk to another part of the museum? You're going to show us um, something else, and I'm just going to leave that for you to tell us. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, Kathy. So we, we've walked to another part of the museum. We're standing in front of a skull that's under glass. Well, actually, before we start with the skull, you have to tell everyone about the film poster behind you, which is strangely, by happenstance, one of my favorite films. <laughs> well, we're standing in the execution room in the Museum of Death, and the poster behind me is of the traveling executioner, and it's an unbelievably interesting, intriguing film by Stacy Keach. Stacy Keach is in it. And I believe he directs it as no, well. Jack, Jack, Jack Smite's the director. Okay. But uh, Stacey Keach stars in it, and it's so weird, it has to be seen. <laughs> so we'll just, because this is not what we're going to talk about, I'll just quickly wrap this up. The film is shot entirely on location in pre-World War II federal penitentiaries in the Middle West and South. He's an executioner. Everyone has really good gabardine suits. They never change them. They have really long hair. They never bathe, and they're constantly shaving people and and electrocuting them. So go see the film. And um, now, back to the skull under glass. Well, it's actually a mummified head, and it's of Henry Landrieu. He was the bluebeard of Paris. He was executed in 1922 for killing, I believe, 12 of his wives, but they believe that he killed over 200 women. And he was caught 
because he would marry these women, take them on a honeymoon and buy a one-way ticket for them and a round-trip ticket for himself. And actually, that's how he was um, convicted, not just caught, but convicted, because the ticket taker testified. <laughs> he was, it was premeditated because he knew they weren't coming back. And he would take, uh, take their belongings. You know, he'd marry rich, rich women and take what they had. But he um, was guillotined in Paris, so that's how he came by his head somehow. Let me, let, let, me, let me interrupt you just for everyone listening. That's not to be the, the notion of Bluebeard has to do with uh, Henry VIII. Do you want to get into the whole? No. <laughs> okay. Well, Blue, Bluebeard had many, was, was it, had many wives. wives, yes. Okay. So that's just, yeah, ma- many, many, many wives. Um, wow. So how did he, how did he get them? So he was, he's a handsome looking guy, it looks like. Yeah, he would just, you know, usually go to the um, spinsters of the day. If you were over 20, usually back then, you were a spinster if you weren't married. So he would go to usually also um, women who had lost their husband. So they had some money, and he wanted the money. So he would woo them and marry them, and then... Off with them. <laughs> so how, what was the, the method of, 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 what was his M.O.? How did he kill them? You know, I do not know how he killed his women. I better, I should that, that's, that. Uh, that, that's, a, uh, that's a, okay, good thought question. I'm glad I asked. Um, just, okay, so I'm staring, it is an embalmed skull. Just give us a little bit more about this skull and how it came to be here. Well, we believe, back in the day, executioners could keep, even to this day in Iran or or Saudi Arabia where they uh, do a lot of beheadings and behandings, the executioner can keep a trophy. So sometimes it would be ears, noses, and sometimes they would keep the entire head. And since the Henry was so famous for the day and age, they kept the head, the executioner. And my theory is that they stuck it in a closet. It had the right temperature and the Humidity was right, and it mummified. And somehow it made it to the United States and made it to uh, this uh, doctor in Malibu. He had a number of heads. When he called me, (laughs) this is what he told me. He saw me on um, the History Channel. I did a a program on um, uh, things that are now. What what was that program called? Anyway, um, it, it was about execution, modern marvels. That's what it was. And I did a whole episode on um, hanging. So I'm sitting there on TV talking. I was such a nice, young-looking woman, and I seemed so happy. And he, so he emails me, and he said those exact things, and then said, I don't know if you want it, but would you like this head I have? My wife doesn't like it anymore. I have a number of heads, and this one just has to go. It's either the head or my wife, and I want to keep my wife. It was very odd. So my husband met this doctor at an ear, nose, and throat clinic in Eagle Rock because he ran this clinic as well. And he brought this head and said, here you go. And that's how it came about. Um, Just, uh, wow. And I'm just um, wondering aloud, um, he was executed in in, in the early 1920s in, in, in France. So do you know offhand when they stopped? using the practice of guillotine as a method of execution in France? I do know that. It was 1978. 
ask you to repeat that. Guillotine as a method of execution was abolished in what year in France? The guillotine was abolished in 1978, which people don't realize that at all. There's footage of the last execution. It wasn't done well. It's filmed from the top of the wall. It was a sneak footage. And, uh, yeah, it's, it was done in 1978. That was the last guillotine in Paris. And believe me, those French, they hate if you bring it up. Because when I went to Paris a few years ago, I was just so excited to go to the place where they were doing the guillotining, and I wanted to see all the history. I wanted to buy a little mini guillotine. I, f- I figured, of course they'd have one. Disneyland has that kind of stuff. Why wouldn't Paris? Why wouldn't they revel in that? No way. If you ask anyone in Paris about the guillotine, they do not want to talk about it. They think it's a, a black mark on the history of France, and which I think is, I mean, that, I guess that's why we're Americans. <laughs> We love that kind of history. Nineteen. <laughs> wow. I get Franco was still in power though, so I guess there's some solace in that for Western Europe. Um, the last lynching in our country was 1938, which isn't that long ago. And lynching was a, the law of the land. It wasn't just something people did; it was an actual law. You could lynch people. So creepy. Again, America. We're, we're, we're gonna. Um, we're, we. we I, we, I promised you we'd only stick to two totem objects, and we just can't get off into the general concept of methods of execution until next time. Okay. Until next time. Um, I want to I wanna wrap this up. I want you to give us something to take away after having meditated on, on your the pickled heart of your beloved pig and the mummified head of a serial killer from Paris. Oh, well, I'm going to let you take away our hours, which are 11 to 8 <laughs> daily, <laughs> except some of those mean holidays, you know, like Christmas and Thanksgiving. But we're here. Death never sleeps, so we're here all the time. But other than that, take away. Life is great. Get out there and live it every single day. Thank you, Kathy. You're welcome, Richard. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Chris Nichols. I'm at the A Plus D Museum, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of May 5th, 2014. Our guests this week were Kathy Schultz with the Museum of Death in Hollywood, and Baba Jemmy, and he is manager of Vedanta Press at the Vedanta Society at the Vedanta Temple in Hollywood. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want you to know we really are glad to have you. And we want to hear from you. So, Kim, the feedback loop. Here it is. You can send us an email through the contact link at esoteric.com or at youcanteatthesunshine at gmail.com. You can join us on an esoteric bus adventure or a lava event, free or paid. And you can also, if you're a little bit antisocial, go to iTunes and review the show, and eventually we'll, we'll see that review and we'll probably giggle about it a little. And reviews help other people find the podcast, so anyway, you can spread the word. We're grateful for and we're always happy to hear from our listeners. Thanks. Okay, that was good. All right, Kim, you're going to do this. I can do this. You're going you're to bring us home. Do you have, do you have your notes? I do, I do. We're gonna, you're, you're going to quickly bring us up to speed on the next eight best tours. This is going to take us all the way through the end of July. Okay, go. All right. 
I'm going to do this fast because the fact of the matter is there's information on all of these tours on the Esoteric website. May 17th, Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles, a tour about noir fiction and film and the life of a very sweet, very drunk man who we're obsessed with. We get on to the crime bus on May 31st for Eastside Babylon, perhaps my most unhinged crime bus tour. It's really dark, it's really weird, it's kind of wacky, and it includes carnies. We'd love to see you there. June 7th, Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice, a tour about the lost downtown of burlesque and murder and B-girls and beautiful hotel lobbies, and it's it's a very fun way to get to know downtown, a, a neighborhood a lot of people are talking about, but they don't always know what they're talking about, so come with us. We promise we've done real research. We'll even show you where Zip the Pinhead, the famous What Is It, was displayed about 100 years ago. June 14th, back on the crime bus, it's Pasadena Confidential with Crimebo the Clown, a tour about rocket science, black magic, suicide bridges, and Bears and Chimps. June 21st, it's Weird West Adams, a tour of one of the earlier suburbs of Southern California, and just some of the god-awful things that happen there, plus a visit to Rosedale Cemetery and the shortest street in the city of Los Angeles, which is perpendicular to one of the most beautiful streets, and you probably have never seen it. It's in the middle of Pico Union. I'm not going to tell you what it's called, because I want you to get on the bus. Then we've got a couple of weeks off. Why, three weeks off? Oh, Richard, maybe we'll go away and have some fun. July 12th brings us to Haunts of a Dirty Old Man. That's a tour about Charles Bukowski, the writer, and how he remade himself as a writer. Hmm. Two weeks off. Two weeks off? Mm, no. Three weeks. We have a lava salon in the middle there. Um, remade himself as a writer from a postal worker. Very interesting guy. Very sweet tour. Not really um, what you might expect from the, the hard-drinking, hard-loving reputation Bukowski has. And I find that some of the nicest people in the world get on that bus. So if you like Bukowski, come out and, and learn a little about him with some Bukowski people. Crawling down Coenga, Tom Waits, Los Angeles, on July 19 is our once-a-year bus tour hosted by the writer David Smay, who is my longtime collaborator on rock and roll books, and he wrote his own little 33 and a third book about uh, Tom Waits circa 1980 and how true love changed him as an artist and as a man. And so we, we take a tour of Echo Park, Hollywood, and downtown and follow that path. I always look forward to that tour. And we wrap up July with our most popular crime bus tour, The Real Black Dahlia, a tour not about who killed Elizabeth Short, the victim in the still most notorious unsolved murder, certainly in Los Angeles, maybe in the world. Well, okay, we're not going to talk Ripper. Let's just say Los Angeles. Um, we want to know who she is, not who killed her, so come walk in her footsteps. That's July 26th, and that wraps us up. But if you go to the Esoteric website, you'll see we've listed tours through August. There's a lot of good stuff coming up. You did it, Kim. Thank you. Oh, thank I you. Wanna, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you. You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between us.
to make a beeline. 